Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with a special episode today. I am thrilled to host my colleague, Gail Wilkinson, who is Evertrue's relatively new head of people and culture. Welcome, Gail. Thank you, Brent. Thank you so much. How are you doing today? I am doing great. And I just want to provide a little bit of context for our audience. Uh, Evertrue has been growing over the last decade, and we have been uh, in the startup phase. We've been in the uh, established some product market fit and now scaling phase. And we waited way too long to hire our first head of people and culture, which is some feedback that I have received as CEO of the company. Uh, and so it was one of the goals that we set out earlier this year to, uh, to be able to really bring on a people partner who could help uh, us with the employee life cycle at Evertrue. And we'll talk more about the employee life cycle, but we went through that process and it was also a unique time because we were fully remote uh, when we went through this search. Gail and I have actually never met in person, though it sure feels like we have. And, uh, and we were just thrilled to be able to get connected um, to Gail as she was looking for her next opportunity. And it's just been a lot of fun. But we know that many of the uh, folks listening uh, have either recently started a new job or considering a new job. If you're in a leadership position, you might be like me thinking, we do sure that when people, um, you know, crazy period of change that we've all been dealing with. And so I thought it'd be fun to welcome Gail to our podcast and provide some of that perspective and also be a chance for Gail and I to get to know each other a little bit better as well. Well, I am honored and thank you for that um, gracious welcome. And I look forward to our chat today, Brent. So Gail, we do typically start with our guests by trying to better understand their own higher education journey. And I think that that is a totally appropriate way to start here today. So why don't you just tell me a little bit about who you are, who you are, where you're from, and what led you to Bethune-Cookman? So I am originally from the Caribbean. I am from the U.S. Virgin Islands, St. Thomas, beautiful 32 square mile island. And um, I grew up in St. Thomas. Um, my father lived in Florida. My mom lived in the Caribbean. And so I often went back and forth. Um, finally, um, at the junior high mark, I moved to Tampa and lived with my dad for a little while. And then my mom also migrated uh, to Florida, to um, Ormond Beach, woohoo, go sand crabs, uh, where I went to high school. I went to Seabreeze High School. And um, at that time, ever since I was a little girl, I wanted to be an attorney. So I had a love, love obsession with Perry Mason. My mom still watched Perry. Perry. I'm really aging myself. People are like, who's Perry Mason? My dad um, was super into Perry Mason. So I'm with you. Um, so just had, uh, uh, I was a very curious child. They actually thought I might be a scientist or something like that, but just always um, had a um, you know, an affection for justice. And so wanted to be an attorney. And so um, after high school, actually, I initially spent a couple semesters at Temple University in Philly. They had an excellent law program. And then I decided that Philadelphia was just not where I wanted to be. I was an island girl. I grew up in Florida. Uh, North Philly was not doing it for me. 
And so needed to, you know, finish school and get back into school and kind of figure it out. And because I had gone to high school um, in Ormond Beach, which is right, you know, it's right outside of Daytona Beach, it's like a little town. I had known about Bethune-Cookman University, obviously my entire uh, life living there, but an HBCU was not on my radar, but finishing school was. And so I uh, decided that Bethune-Cookman University was gonna be a good option for me. Um, and that's where I ended up. I studied psychology, I minored in business, um, through the direction of an amazing um, counselor who, uh, his name is Dr. Ian Payton. I've never gone back and thanked him, but I should because he is the one that told me that those two passions of mine, people and business, because I said to him, I don't want to be a psychologist. I don't want to hear people's problems all day, um, which is, you know, what I do. I'm a... <laughs> I'm a solution strategist. That's what I call myself. Um, and he was the one that recommended that along with my psychology classes and my business classes that I uh, look into organizational design and human resources and OD because that was going to be a very promising uh, career in the future. And so that's uh, how I ended up with my studies. And that's a little bit about how I ended up at Bethune-Cookman. Well, I just looked up Dr. Ian Payton, and I've got his email address, his building room number, and I can assure you that we will make sure he receives a copy of this so that he can uh, hear that shout out from you directly. But um, but it is funny that you know you said you didn't want to be a psychologist, and I will say I feel like a big part of the people and culture role these days is psychology. So we can talk more about that. Um, it really is. And looking back, um, I really am doing exactly uh, what I should have been doing when I studied psychology. It was just the fascination of people's behaviors and thoughts and what makes us tick and what makes a difference. And, you know, so many terms that are, you know, that we throw out so casually now, the mental health and trauma and and you know, self-control and self-actualize, all of those things were very fascinating to me. And so having that background has just proven um, priceless in my career in really mirroring my two passions, uh, people and business. And so um, on some days, I, I do feel like a psychologist, right? Um, there's people come to me for solutions in my personal and my professional life, but I wouldn't have it any other way. It's what I'm supposed to be doing. So you, um, and we don't need to go through your entire, you know, job by job on your resume, but it is interesting to me that you have worked for some medium-sized businesses, then you've worked for some very large companies, and you've worked uh, more recently for entrepreneurial smaller ventures, but are you know growing like ever true. And I am curious when you think about the roles that you've held, the scope of work, and some of the nuances of uh, medium business, very large business, uh, and then smaller entrepreneurial business like Evertrue, um, if there are any themes that stand out or if really it doesn't matter that much how many uh, employees are on the org chart? Um, that's a great question, um, Brent. I don't think it really matters. Um, you and I've really been talking a lot about our strategy and our vision. And I can tell you um, whether you have one employee 
or you have 10,000 employees, um, the people and culture role is the same. And so throughout my career, I've, I've had an amazing career. I have, as you indicated, worked at small companies. I've worked at startups. I've worked at some of the leading number one and number two co companies in the world. Um, what I have found is each one has given me a different tool for my toolbox. Each one, I've learned a different skill, whether I, was, I learned about comp. Uh, compensation. Maybe I learned about organizational design. Maybe I just learned how to treat people. Uh, maybe I learned how to listen. And so each one of my uh, positions has just taken me that much closer uh, to some of my goals and uh, really being the best people and culture professional that I can be. What are some of your favorite professional memories on that journey? Um, before Evertrue, and then we can talk about Evertrue a little bit, but, you know, favorite <laughs> memories uh, along the way, and also if there were any real challenges that you've faced as well. Yeah, you know, it's that old adage of, you know, uh, youth is wasted on the youth, right? <laughs> so I wish I could be my 25 plus tax self. Um, at 25 and um, really take some of that passion and that that intuitiveness that that you know I was very curious about everything and sometimes that was not always properly harnessed I had an excellent leader again he's going to get a shout out Mr. Gerard Moss uh, who at my tender late 20s um, gave me a really good talk about the fact that um, being in corporate America, really, he likened it to a game and really understanding that there's a game being played. And he said, Gail, you really have to, first of all, decide whether or not you want to play. And once you've decided that you want to play, you then have to learn the rules. Once you have figured out the rules to that game, Gail, there's only two positions in a game, a winner and a loser. And I want you to position yourself to win. And um, that was very pivotal for me because he taught me how to take all this passion that I had as a young professional and harness that in a way that would properly represent me. Um, you know, knowing how to read a room, right? Uh, knowing that if an idea gets shot down, that it's not personal. It's now an opportunity for you to sit back and figure out why it was shot down and how you could possibly bring that idea to life in a different way. He taught me that he, oh, he had told me one day that, uh, that the black, black and white crayons were not the only ones in the box and that it was a full box of crayons and that how did he taught me how to expand my mind and think differently um, and how to really engage with people at all levels, whether it was the CEO or it was the person who came and took the trash out of the office. He really taught me a lot of professional skills that have um, brought me to where I am today. So Mr. Gerard Moss was a great part of my journey. <laughs> of it. Tell, tell me a little bit about the evolution of the space that you have built your career. And what I mean by that is historically, and the way I've had it described to me is we always used to talk about HR. There was HR, human resources, HR. And over the last several years, there's been much more of a movement towards people operations, people in culture, 
a title that you now hold. And the way it was described to me is that historically, HR, even though it was supposed to be about the team, it was more of a thinking of the employees as liabilities and how do you make sure that you're protected against all those liabilities? Whereas people operations and culture maybe philosophically thinks of employees more as assets and team members as assets and how do we uh, support those assets uh, to uh, have the best possible experience to be able to contribute as much as possible across their uh, employee life cycle. And I'm just curious if you've felt that shift personally when you think about old school HR versus where we are today. Um, and, and maybe, you know, just where on that spectrum do you sort of see yourself? Um, you know, that's a really great question, Brent. I think the jury is still out on that. I think that those of us who have grown up in the human resources world um, really feel an affection and an identity towards it. Um, I think the people ops that's coming up, I think it'll be interesting to see where we go with that because when you look at a lot of the people ops title, it's kind of tied to uh, some startups or certain industries. And so when you think of the people, people and culture title, for me, again, I've just had a really great career with some excellent experiences. And I learned very early on that people were not liabilities. They were our number one asset, that it, it didn't matter how great our product was, how strong our marketing strategy presented itself. It almost really doesn't even matter how much you pay people. If you don't treat them right and you don't position them to win, you don't have a company. And so if something so important defines your company, that's an asset. That's not a liability. And so as we are trending really over the last couple of years, as we know, the pandemic has changed the way many um, companies have conducted their businesses. However, a lot of companies that were innovative and ahead of the curve were already adopting that people first and people culture Um philosophy. And so I don't think that I personally have had to pivot that much front, you know, one of our buzzwords these days, pivot, be agile. Um, I feel like I've really had a good run um, in working for companies where even though we weren't called people in culture, we knew how important it was. Very well said. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the employee life cycle. And it is not all that common in the education advancement world where we spend all of our time at Evertrue to have a head of people and culture. It is becoming more common that there might be somebody who is the chief uh, you know, talent uh, person, but oftentimes it feels like that role has been really focused on recruitment, uh, especially given how challenging uh, and how competitive the market is for strong fundraising talent um, across the country and even more so post pandemic. And so I'd just be curious to know, you know, when I walk through the employee life cycle, and this is just one definition of it, if you have a perspective on one thing that organizations often get wrong, uh, and maybe one thing that they could keep in mind uh, to really focus on getting right. And so let's just start with the attraction, the recruitment phase um, of the employee life cycle, where do 
things go wrong and, and where could they really um, be improved? Um, wow. How much time do we have, Brent? Um, <laughs> so, A maximum of 42 minutes, but I think we can keep it uh, crisper than that. <laughs> so um, that is such a great question. And I think everybody's trying to find their way, right? So the one thing that I would say that I find that companies, leaders, hiring managers, whatever we want to say, whoever ma whoever's making these decisions, one of the things that I believe that people do wrong is hiring uh, for people they like as opposed to people they need. OK, and you and I have a little joke about how we liked each other from the get go. Right. So I'm not dismissing that you have to really, you know, you have to be soulish with people. You have to have some compatibility. But there comes when hiring, you've got an opening. And at the end of the day, the purpose of that opening is that you have a skill. You have a job that needs to be accomplished and you want to bring somebody in who is not only going to be able to do that job, but probably excel and advance that role beyond what you thought it could do. And so I think the mistake we make is not having a wide range of understanding of what potential can look like and what actual skill is necessary. So I think that those are some areas that if we think about, you know, what do I need? How is this job going to be successful? Um, we come up with our elaborate job descriptions. We put 50 things in there. And at the end of the day, there's probably only really five that's a must have. Um, and I think those are some things that companies could um, work on from the get go before you even post the position to really have an honest conversation about what we need. Um, in order to be successful. The next thing is the interview process. Um, you know, companies, as you mentioned, there's so many articles out there now about the great resignation. Top talent has, they've always had options. When somebody's an A or a B player, they always have an option. But in this particular economy, they've got even more options. And as an employer, you're gonna have to go, you're gonna have to go a little bit extra, right? And one of the big things is the interview process. Um, most times, let's say you get the job description right, now you're in the interview process, the right questions aren't necessarily being asked, the right people are not involved, and so therefore the candidate isn't necessarily getting the right picture of the company because employers have to also understand it's a two-way interview. It's not just, hey, you want to bring me on board and, you know, pay me this amount of money. I have a choice whether or not I want to be on board. And having the right interviewers involved and the right questions involved, that makes a huge difference. When a, when a candidate comes out of an interview and they feel informed and they feel like, wow, I can see myself sitting next to Brent. I can see myself sitting next to Shelly. That's a win. You're down the road. And so being able to have the right job description, putting together the correct interview panel with those questions, and then being able to make a decision quickly. A lot of times the decision gets dragged out because those three, those two pivotal foundational um, bricks were not in place. I like the way you describe that because, you know, my, my perspective is always, is this the right mutual fit? And I think sometimes it can be well, I'm selling you on why you should come to Evertrue or you're selling me on why you, you're the best candidate. And sometimes, you know, it's like, hey, maybe 
maybe Evertrue's not the place for you. And maybe you're not the person for Evertrue and like, but maybe you are. So how do we really have a candid discussion that gets us to, um, is this a great mutual fit or as good as a mutual fit as we believe, um, you know, you, we could figure, you know, establish prior to somebody uh, actually working, uh, working together. So I think that's really well, well said. Let's talk about the next stage, which is something you and I were talking about this morning, which is onboarding. Where do folks go wrong? And what is something that you should really keep in mind to do right as it relates to onboarding? I know onboarding. I remember taking a position that I was absolutely very excited about. I was excited about the leader I was going to work for. And he told me, he looked me in my eye, Brent, and he said to me, we do not do onboarding well. We don't. I'm telling you, it's not going to go well. (laughs) So I thought, okay, no problem. I'll be able to get through this. Um, And they did not do onboarding well. And I will tell you the things that will make a great onboarding is number one, having a plan for that person to join the company. Um, Somebody showing up and not having their equipment or in in most cases nowadays, equipment not being shipped on time, not having at minimum a full two week schedule of what this person's going to be doing, who they're going to be meeting with, what training do they have to have, having somebody set aside as a true onboarding buddy, somebody outside of their world that they can reach out to and not feel inferior in asking a question because we all feel it, right? We're like, oh my gosh, they've hired me for this job. I've got to know how to use my Mac, even though I've never used a Mac in my life, right? And so making sure that you've got their equipment ready to go, that you have a proper two to four week schedule where they know that somebody took some time to put this together and that time that's allotted to be spent with them will be devoted to them. Also asking them what they need. One of the key questions I ask in in an interview process is, if you're offered this opportunity, tell me some of the things that we will need to do to support you and ensure that you do well. What are some areas that you're still developing in? Taking that from the interview and putting things in place to ensure that person has what they need. And then from there, Doing your checkups, your 30-day, your 60-day, your 90-day checkup to see how they're really doing. You know, we told you you were getting a Big Mac fries and a Coke. Did you open it up and find, you know, like a hot dog? Like, are, are you getting what we thought, what you said? And those are all important tools to having a successful onboarding. Love it. Uh, and I feel like I should be asking you if you got the Big Mac fries and Coke. Actually, I think I got double fries. All right. All right. Uh, Let's talk about the next stage, right? You recruit someone, you onboard them, you do it in a disciplined way. They feel well-prepared, ready to hit, um, you know, hit the ground running. And then you move into, let's call it the developmental or the, or the, uh, yeah, let's just call it the development and coaching phase, which really should be um, sort of a, maybe it's front loaded. Um, but just when you think about the development aspect, um, how do you how do you define a great experience and where do folks go wrong? Um, this is probably I love all the HR disciplines, but I think development is probably one of my favorites. I love to see people thrive and do well in what they're doing. 
And um, you and I haven't talked about this yet, but I certainly have some opinions about how performance reviews are done. I believe that it's, it's everyday engagement. And I don't think that you have to wait until once a year or twice a year. I think it's an ongoing conversation so that at the end of the year, you really are truly talking about next steps. And so to answer your question in terms of how we develop, um, it starts with the conversation. What is it that, what's in store for you? What is it that you would like to do? What are some things that you think you do well now? And then what, where do you see yourself? I believe in a plan. If you start today and you say, my, my goal is to become the CEO of Evertrue when Brent Grena resigns. Okay, how are we gonna get you there? What is it that you need to become CEO? And we start to put those building blocks in place. Um, I like to ha I like to make sure that somebody has a sponsor and as well as a mentor. And you know the difference with that is a sponsor is the person who's talking about you when you're not in the room that has influence. And your mentor is that person who can deposit gifts and talents that you don't have. They encourage you, they tell you the truth, and they provide opportunities for you to get those things that you need. And so those are the ways that I think that you begin to develop and engage. One of the beautiful things about having talented people on your team is that they want to be around other talented people. So how are you ensuring that you're also keeping them engaged with the people that they're working with, that they're not feeling like they're the only ones pulling the weight? Uh, one of the challenges sometimes we have as leaders is not making the decisions early enough to let somebody go who's not doing what they should on the team. And that will weigh down your A and B players. All of that plays into development and having those conversations. And just to top it off, when you have great people on your team that you've hired, um, the best way to keep them engaged is to make time for them. Um, and I think we sometimes you think your A and B players doing their thing and they don't need you. You spend a lot more time on your C and D players and it should be the reverse. So I think that's some things that you can do to develop great talent. I love it. And it's sort of a let's call it a blurry line between the um, maybe development stage and then another category, which would be retention. Uh, and I think, you know, as it relates to retention and look in our in our customer community, uh, donor retention is key, uh, but I feel like sometimes even within the advancement uh, colleagues that we speak with, maybe there's not as much focus on employee retention, yet when you interview leaders, the number one thing they say they care about is uh, retention of, of talented staff. And so I am curious, Gail, when you think about proactive uh, retention strategies, um, what are some things you've seen work well, and then where do folks uh, get it wrong, and and maybe even the answer to that question has evolved in a uh, in a COVID or post COVID context where um, we're all now a Zoom link away, and you're in Charlotte, and I'm in Rhode <laughs> Island, and we've never met in person, and we're getting work done every day without skipping a beat. Absolutely. So I think so. So let's say this. Let's let's just put the elephant in the room to rest. There are some people that you're just not going to be able to retain. A great opportunity comes their way. You know, it's the right money. It's the right location for them. And they just decide to take it. Right. So let's put that aside. 
But retention comes in the form of ensuring that people in this day and age where we have remote work, that companies are providing flexibility. You know, COVID has turned everything on its ear. Three years ago, we would not imagine that we would be having, um, you know, Zoom meetings and little kids jumping in and pets on the, we would never have imagined that. We would have never imagined that people would be on, on a Zoom call looking very casual and we're all, you know, talking about very casual things. And so some people really need that. And so ensuring that you are retaining an environment that people are comfortable, that they feel they have flexibility, that they believe that they're cared for. And retention also comes into leadership. Just like leaders want good people, good people want good leaders. They want to be trusted. Uh, They want to be given the stretch projects to show what they can do. They want the exposure. And they want to know that they have a future within the company. That hasn't changed. And when you look at, you know, there's the old adage that people don't leave great companies, they leave leaders. And, And I think there is some truth to that. But in this economy where people have choices, the flexibility, the care, the empathy, and providing development is how you're going to keep your great people on board. And then let's talk about offboarding. And there's really two kinds of offboarding or folks exiting the company. There's um, when it's the employee's decision, and then there's when it's the leadership's decision. And so I'm just curious when you think about um, having effective offboarding, you know, that can obviously be a learning moment. Um, what are some processes? And we haven't really gone through this uh, too much uh, since, since you joined Evertruth, thankfully, but it's inevitable. What, what are some of the... Um, best practices as it relates to offboarding, both when it's employee initiated uh, versus company initiated? I don't think that there's that much of a difference, Brent. I think the key to a successful offboarding is simple. It's respectful. The same way that that person felt joining your organization, they should feel the same way coming in. So if I decide that I'm no longer going to be with Evertrue, that should be handled very respectfully. The announcing of that person leaving, um, what they are doing over the next few weeks, um, how we how we treat that person during that time frame. And I always share with leaders that it's really not the person who left, it's the people that stay. They watch how that person was treated uh, whether they resigned or we resigned them <laughs> from the company. And so I think respect is the key. Now, we know there are some situations where it may result in something um, that could negatively impact everyone in the company. And we may have to, you know, remove access right away. Um, that person may, ha- we may not have the time or the really the flexibility to say, hey, we're giving them two weeks. And those are one-off extreme situations. But whether someone has resigned from the company or we've just decided that they're no longer a good fit for what us, respect is the key to having that done effectively. Very well said. And that, our friends, is the employee life cycle. You heard it first here uh, from Gail. And, um, you know, I have to say, I was tempted to ask you to give Evertrue a grade along each of those categories, but maybe, uh, you know, it's, it's still early, but uh, I am curious 
when you reflect on, uh, let's call it the two phases that you've really participated in so far, the recruitment phase, and then the onboarding phase, what stands out, you know, good also constructively, if there are things you've seen that we uh, need to improve, that's okay too. And, and I'd love to just kind of get your own uh, audit, if you will, of the ever true recruitment and onboarding process. Well, I will tell you in my almost 60 days with the company, uh, the recruiting process was done extremely well. And I complimented you on that from the beginning, Brent, um, from the uh, way it was handled uh, to the, the time that you reached out uh, to the really, for all intents and purposes, really a, a three interview process. Um, that was seamless. Um, it was done very well. I felt very welcomed. <laughs> I felt wanted. I, I was not an afterthought at all in your recruiting process. And that was a, that was a breath of fresh air. Um, the communication was great. And so you definitely get an A plus on that one. That would um, be my colleagues, Erica and Shelly, who get A pluses, but I wrote along uh, uh, yes. and drafted their successes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It was, it was a, it was a team effort and it was very well done. Um, and my onboarding continues to be well done. Um, you have, we have one-on-ones, you've made the time for that. You have really allowed me the room uh, to come in and really get to know my position and get to know everyone in the company. Um, I have onboarding buddies that are available to me to assist in, in my onboarding. And I can tell you that it has been a successful onboarding from, especially from a remote standpoint, I got my equipment on time. I got my swag on time. Uh, communication has been has been done very well, and I can honestly tell you, six almost sixty days in, I've had a great recruiting and a great onboarding. So, you know, I kind of have big shoes to fill. I don't know what else I can do, considering you guys were doing it well without me. <laughs> well, let's just uh, speak to that for a minute. Um, what are some of the areas of potential, areas of opportunity where you think, hey, we, we are doing things well, we've got a good foundation, smart, fun, hardworking team, but there's room for improvement here. Um, what are some of the themes that over the next, you know, let's call it at the one year check in, we're catching up uh, that you hope you'll be proud of, let's say. Yeah, I think some of the things, because it's just enhancement from here, right? So one of the things that we are going to work um, and put in place is a proper kind of a new hire onboarding and welcoming, something that not only lets someone know that they're welcomed, but we're also letting them know what they're being welcomed into. So we're going to have a really nice, robust um, onboarding welcoming session that involves multiple members of the team. We will definitely have a really good uh, talent acquisition strategy that not only, you know, um, one of the great things we have in place is a referral, uh, an employee referral bonus, which we know good people know other good people, but we are really going to have a much more intentional and focused um, uh, talent retention and talent acquisition process that will really 
Uh, we're going to be right up there with the employers of choice. You know, we are going to be one of those employers that people will be on the wait list to join uh, because we're going to have those processes in place. And we're definitely going to continue to look at ways to engage. We're going to expand our DEI. Our leadership development will be taken to a next level. Uh, we will be looking at our benefit offerings. There's just uh, quite a few things that we will be able to enhance and really position us to continue to scale and grow as a, you know, force in this fundraising world. Love it. Gail, tell me just a little bit about your perspective on DEI, which you just touched on in concert with, uh, you know, COVID, the DEI conversation has been elevated in a way that I haven't seen before in my career, but you've been in the HR uh, uh, and people operations world. You've been a female black leader in that world. And I'm just curious from where you sit, um, what that evolution has, has been like, um, for you, for your, uh, you know, for your community, for, um, former colleagues or, uh, current colleagues for that matter. Well, so you, you kind of asked two or three questions. So I'm going to back up. So, I think that it's great. I'm 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 excited, um, you know, as a black woman in America, um, that the conversation is finally on someone's table, right? However, um, right now it's it's really still a lot of conversation, Brent. Um, we we are seeing moves, right? We're seeing people being put into different positions. We know earlier this year we had two black women, Fashan. Shonda Duckett at TIAA and Roz Brewer um, at Walgreens. And notice how I could roll those two names off my tongue so easily because it was big news that they were leading, you know, uh, top organizations. Um, now, there have been some other women in the past, very few and far between. We had Ursula Burns at Xerox. But however, it's still a conversation. And so I think we are headed in the right direction where we will start to see um, where we will start to see change is when it's not a conversation that it's just happening. And we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We know that for many years, diversity was seen as a white female. If you had a white female in a position, that was your diversity checkbox. And as you and I've talked about, diversity is not just about skin color. It's not just about ethnicity. It's not about religion. It's thought. It's differently abled. Um, it's beliefs. And so we have quite a way to go within the industry of HR and DE&I always being a part of the job that I've done. I've worked at companies where we never even discussed it because it was just woven through our fabric. It wasn't, you know, we've got to have this many or we're doing this. It was just what we did. And then there were other companies that we really had to focus because we didn't have everybody's buy-in. And I think in order for this to be successful, it, it can't be a checkbox. It can't be a, oops, we've made a mistake. It has to just be, you know what? This is the way we do business because we know having diverse thoughts, diverse people, people who think differently, that look differently is the only way that we're gonna be successful. And so when that becomes the mindset um, that you know we have to do this because we don't want our um, stocks to be affected, right? We don't wanna get put on the cancel list. 
uh, you know, we don't want that bad press. Uh, when it just becomes this is the way we do business is when we're really going to take off. And I think that's going to take a while. It's great that the conversation's happening, but it's not going to happen overnight because it's a heart. It's a heart change, Brent. It's not just a mind change. Do you feel like there's an implication for I mean, can can remote work and more remote friendly uh, policies be a catalyst for continued improvement there. I mean, I'm not sure if three years ago, if we had run the search for head of people and culture at Evertrue, that we ever would have crossed paths. I'm just not sure. But then in the context of COVID and more remote and just feeling like for Evertrue, we needed to trend in that direction. Um, we're now connected and you're in Charlotte and, and I'm here and our colleagues are spread out all over. Um, do you feel like that will be a benefit in the DEI context, or maybe it's really not that big of a deal. And um, if you just work at it and you make it part of what you do, it, it shouldn't really matter where your headquarters is located. I think it will, I think it will absolutely be a benefit. I'll, I'll give you an example. So I lived in South Florida for many years. For 21 years, I lived in South Florida. Um, South Florida is a melting pot. You know, Florida is technically the South, but West Palm Beach to Key West, we, we didn't consider ourselves the South. And so you can imagine in South Florida, there are, I mean, there is a melting pot of people from so many different places. I worked at very few companies in South Florida where we even talked about diversity because it just happened, right? So think about you now, like you said, fast, you know, let's go back three years. You're in the heart of Boston. And while Boston is very metropolitan and very busy, you and I know Boston doesn't quite have the same diversity as a South Florida. So the fact that you have the ability to go remote really does give you a leg up in being able to find more diverse talent. Because if you were just saying, hey, I, I only want people here in Boston, you've got to be able to come to the office, that limits what you can really do, not only with ethnicity, but with, with thoughts. You know, people in Boston don't think the same way people in Charlotte think. People in Charlotte don't think the way people in Mississippi think. And so it really does give you just an unlimited uh, terrain of talent. Well said. In the time we have less left, just uh, share a little bit. You've mentioned sponsorship and mentorship earlier. What's an example of somebody who's been a sponsor for you versus somebody who's been a mentor? And what are some of the, um, I guess, points that you'd make uh, aligned with the definition of each that you provided earlier? Um, so I have had, I mean, I've had an amazing career. I just, I've, I've been blessed and things that I could not imagine could happen for me have happened. And it was because of mentorship and it was because of sponsorship. So I have many mentors <laughs> in my life, but I will go to a mentor that I had that really hired me to work for them and um, really saw a lot of potential in me. And from the day I joined, let me run with it. Um, and that is a gentleman by the name of Marcus Rainey. Um, and I, you know, he brought me onto his team and within 
I literally joined the company and within 60 days, he was promoting me into a very difficult role that uh, no one else in the company could take. And he had told me when I hired you for this job, Gail, I, I, I was already kind of thinking because of your background, the things that you could do. And where Marcus Rainey was just a mentor to me was he was not only um, a professional mentor, he was a personal mentor. Um, and we, we share the same faith. So he was a, 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 a spiritual mentor as well. And so he would, you know, sit me down and, and, and walk me through like, hey, at this company, this is how we do this. I don't want you to do it that way. That may be the right way, but that's not how we're going to do it here, right? He would give me lots of assignments. He would stretch me. He would uh, put me in rooms that I probably shouldn't have been in, uh, but he believed in me and really positioned me for the next level. At the same time, I had a sponsor who I really didn't even realize was a sponsor, um, but through the mentorship of Marcus, this person was talking about me in different areas, and this person was really looking out for me um, when I didn't even realize that this person was looking out for me. And they had come to me and said, hey, there's going to be a director role opening up, and I want you to apply for it. And so the difference was I hadn't really worked with this person. They, they had heard about me. They knew about some of my work. They knew some of the things that I had done. Um, and because other people were talking about me, it allowed this person to sponsor me. And one of the things that they did was they actually were getting ready to leave the company. I didn't know they were getting ready to leave the company. Um, and the last thing they did was promote me before they did. Um, and that is the difference between mentorship and sponsorship. Really, really well said. Um, this has been super fun. I knew it would be. I guess <laughs> I would just say, as we wrap up here, um, why did you join Evertrue? Ah, you, you saved the best for last, right? So um, I come from a huge, big um, loud, just loving, vivacious Caribbean family. Um, and we just believe in giving. Um, I was raised with a, with a generous heart and a philanthropic spirit and giving back is not something that I do. It's, it's who I am. I always look for opportunities to try and give and do and figure out. And so when I realized whatever True was doing, it just spoke to me. Um, it's a part of who I am. And what you're doing is not just about education. It's, it's, it's life changing. It's legacy. It's generational. And so the fact that we're doing things that impact not today, but generations to come. It takes one generation to change the tra trajectory and education does that. That's homes, that's colleges, that's vacation um, because somebody is educated. And the fact that we are, we've got a software that allows people to get off of the spreadsheet <laughs> and stop asking for the $10, but can really connect and say, hey, 
Last year, I noticed that you went camping at A, B, C, and D. Is that something that you're interested in? And then we begin to build the relationship to where we can have the ask. I just couldn't think of a better opportunity for my next move. And that's why I joined Evertrue. It's a legacy changer. I love it, Gail. Thank you. It makes me uh, so happy to hear you say that and to you know, hear you put it into your own words. And I do think there's a lot of parallels as we talk about the employee life cycle and the donor life cycle. We've got to attract the donor. We've got to onboard the donor in a positive way. We've got to develop that relationship. It can't just be send the receipt and uh, hope it comes back. We've got to be laser focused on retention. Uh, and the one thing we don't want to do is ever offboard them. So, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe that's the one, one distinction, but I really, uh, just can't thank you enough for sharing a little bit about your journey, your perspective. We've had a bunch of people this year, you know, who've listened to the podcast apply for roles at Evertrue. And so, you know, this is even maybe um, a, a part of our uh, talent uh, acquisition strategy that we didn't ever anticipate would be the case. And so um, I just want to say uh, thank you for believing in us, for giving us a shot uh, and for all the uh, good work that we've done over the last 60 days and we'll be doing uh, in the coming months and years. Brent, thank you so much. It's my honor and, and it's a privilege that I was able to chat with you today. Thank you so much. Excellent, Gail. Well, everybody, that's it for today. Like I said, it was a little bit of a different episode, but hopefully it gave you a good window uh, into our world at Evertrue as we try to improve our own uh, people and culture work, and that will come under Gail's leadership. So with that, Brent, signing off with Gail Wilkinson the head of people and culture here at Evertrue. Take care, everybody.